Hello and welcome back to the Bible Study Tutor. My name is Jessica Hutney and I am your Bible Study Tutor for today. Today we're going to cover Matthew 18 and 19. Now Matthew 18 is Jesus' fourth major discourse of five where he focuses on the community of believers, specifically how they should interact with each other. The chapter begins with Jesus' disciples asking him who among them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, like he always did, seized the opportunity to teach them humility and healthy relationship dynamics for believers. He responded to the disciples' questions about who was the greatest by placing a child among them and declaring that if they did not humble themselves like children, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. Craig Blomberg asserts, Jesus solemnly declares the disciples must turn away, that is change, from the Greek is strepho, from their preoccupation with status and must humble themselves like children. This humility cannot be subjective attitude. Children rarely act humbly. Ain't that the truth? But in objective state, children do depend almost entirely on the adult world for their protection and provision. In first century thought, children were often very little esteemed. Jesus ascribes to them great value, but here his more immediate point is that his would-be disciples must share the condition of utter dependence, in this case on God, end quote. Jesus continues by explaining how they should welcome anyone who also, like a child, believes in Jesus. Receiving a believer is equivalent to receiving Jesus. However, Jesus warned, anyone that caused a believer to stumble, that is caused to apostatize or fall away from the faith, or whoever is a hindrance to one of these little ones who believe in me would be better off if they suffered a horrible drowning. The next section of the chapter focuses on temptations to sin. Throughout, Jesus exclaims the woes of tempting people to sin. Using hyperbole, he stressed the grave importance of doing everything you can to avoid causing these little ones, that is, believers in him, to sin. Leon Morris explains it this way. The term woe in this context should be interpreted as an expression of regret and compassion, indicating that Jesus is not rejoicing in the forthcoming punishment, but emphasizing its inevitability. Woe serves as both a verdict and an expression of sorrow. The individual who leads others into sin is, in essence, bringing upon themselves serious trouble. And also, in this context, world refers to the people of earth, both those who commit sin and those who guide others into it. Unhappiness is unavoidable for both parties involved. The sinner faces trouble due to their wrongful actions, and the one leading others to sin is an even worse situation, as Jesus is making clear." End quote. Being crippled or lame, Jesus said, is better than being thrown into the eternal fire. Thus, whatever the source of one's offense, it is better to eliminate it than to use it to offend others, that is, to cause them to sin. Jesus' point was that sin would continue to exist in the world. People will always be tempted to sin. Yet it is woeful to be the one through whom such temptation comes. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus reiterates the points he made in verses 1 through 9 by emphasizing the importance of not despising that is looking down on with disdain or thinking little or nothing about these little ones. Now these little ones Jesus suggests are invaluable to God so much so that he would leave the 99 to go in search of the one that has gone astray and he rejoices greatly over the one he finds more than over the 99 who never went astray. He does this because he wants no little one to perish. 
In the English Standard Version, verse 11 is missing. It reads, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Continuing his thought, Jesus explains how to address a brother, that is a fellow believer who has gone astray. Addressing them entails going to them directly one-to-one -one first, and then if that doesn't help, Jesus instructed his disciples to get two or three others involved to establish witnesses who can accurately and objectively discern and address or mediate the problem. Now, in the event the issue remains unresolved, Jesus instructed them to tell it to the church. Now, in this context, the church refers to the community of believers and likely a close-knit community or perhaps specifically all the 12 apostles. The purpose of these interventions is to help one brother get on track and stop sinning. Now, if each level of address is ineffective as evidenced by the individual refusing to listen, then and only then are they to let him be to them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And if you've been following with the context throughout our study of Matthew, you know that that is like really intense. So treating them this way aligns with dismissing them from the community as someone who's no longer a brother. Now regarding binding and loosing, Earlier in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus told Peter that he would receive the keys to the kingdom of heaven and that whatever he bound or loosed on earth, it would be bound or loosed in heaven. In 1818, the idea seems to apply to the assembly of believers. Now, binding and loosing is an exercise of authority when it is aligned with God's will. It connects to the idea presented in John 20, verses 23, regarding whether to forgive or not forgive. Now the point is this, doing God's will yields his approval. Now concerning the matter of discipline and exercising authority according to God's will, Jesus assures the disciples that he will endorse and validate their decision and God will do what they ask. It also has the future in mind when the risen Savior, his spirit will remain among them. These verses have nothing to do with two or three people gathering together in agreement on anything they desire to get what they want. One's prayers are not more powerful or effective, nor do they move God anymore if they come into agreement with another person. This scripture is not a blank check whereby we simply find someone else who agrees with us and then God automatically responds by giving us whatever we want. Here, Jesus is saying that we have the full support of the Father in heaven when we gather together in unison to confront sin in the church. Jesus knows that church discipline is not easy and that we will be tempted to shy away from it and not carry it out. He is encouraging us with resources from heaven. And I'll have to remember who I quoted that last part from, so forgive me because I don't remember right now. And then in the next section, the parable of the unforgiving servant, Peter poses a question regarding how often he should forgive someone that sins against him. He wondered if forgiving someone seven times was enough, but Jesus answered that he should forgive 77 times, signifying an ongoing habitual state. Now, 77 times, or some of your translations may say 70 times 7, deals with the magnitude of one's forgiveness, not an actual number or quantity. While Peter had assumed he was being gracious in his willingness to forgive someone seven times because traditionally they had been taught to forgive repeated sin three times, Jesus told him differently. He suggested that there is no maximum number of times you are allowed to forgive someone. Thus, Jesus wanted Peter to understand the great lengths he should take to forgive people, that is to be generous with forgiveness. Then Jesus ed educated them on a matter with the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
The point of the parable was that one who has been forgiven a tremendous debt that he could never repay must also demonstrate forgiveness, grace, mercy to others in view of what God has done for them. They must forgive wholeheartedly, completely, and continually. Now about Matthew 19. Having just talked to his disciples about kingdom relationship dynamics, Jesus is faced with additional relationship questions in chapter 19. Back in the re region of Judea, Jesus was healing people when the Pharisees approached him to test him regarding divorce. They asked if divorce was lawful for any cause. Ultimately, Jesus explained that God's intent from the beginning was that a man and woman would remain married for life. At least four primary schools of thought informed the ancient Jewish interpretation of marriage. In the school of Hillel, the husband could lawfully divorce his wife for any cause. In the school of Shammai, adultery was the only grounds for divorce. Akiba permitted men to divorce if their wife no longer found favor with them even if that included finding a woman who was more attractive than their wife. And regarding the discussion with Jesus, Jesus informed them that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of the hearts of people. So Moses provided for divorce to ensure the protection of women so that they could be secured and taken care of and that their husband could make no later claim on them that would essentially prevent them from marrying someone else and receiving said care. So generally, when they're having this conversation with Jesus, divorce with remarriage is what's in mind. Essentially, Jesus revealed that God's intent, that is his original purpose and design for marriage, is that one man and one woman be united in marriage for life. God's rule, Jesus suggests, overrides all laws, all principles, and of course the follies of mankind. Jesus never endorsed divorce. He simply explained that with exception to sexual immorality, divorce and the implied remarriage is an adulterous offense. Let not man put asunder what God has joined together seems to be referring to marriage itself rather than particular individuals that get married. Now, thinking that God, quote unquote, obviously did or did not want you to be with someone is not the standard in view here. In fact, that never even comes up. Instead, marriage itself is in view, particularly God's design for it. This teaching on divorce aligns with the standards of righteousness discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7. God's intent, Jesus is telling them, is superior, and these issues regarding divorce and remarriage are matters of the heart, essentially. Ultimately, God designed marriage. He determines its standard and purpose. One man and one woman leave their parents and cleave to each other for a lifetime. And no one should separate what God has joined together. That people divorce is a fact as the condition of the human heart has not changed. Therefore, we remain hard-hearted. But God does not endorse or celebrate divorce. And except for sexual immorality, one can divorce or remarry at their own risk. Regardless of all of those details, all the nuances that people fight about and Christians use to make excuses or to judge other folks, the bottom line is this. God has a standard that he wants us to uphold. And divorce is not an unforgivable offense. It is not an unforgivable offense to divorce and remarry. However, 
you would be wise to pause and seek God's will concerning your life before getting a divorce and if you've already divorced before remarrying. Now realizing the intense commitment of marriage, the disciples exclaimed that it would be better not to marry. They not wrong, right? Then Jesus responded that everyone could not receive this, namely the idea of never getting married. He then explained that never marrying is only for those to whom it is given by highlighting three types of eunuchs. Generally, Quarles explains, eunuchs were males who did not experience normal sexual development and were incapable or lacked a normal desire for sexual relationships. Jesus explained to his disciples the three primary reasons that people don't marry using eunuchs as an example. The first example he provided are individuals who are eunuchs from birth. Such individuals are incapable of sexual activity or impotent due to some type of birth defect. The second type of eunuch are those who have been made eunuchs by men. Some, explained Charles Quarles, were castrated typically before they reached puberty to prevent them from maturing sexually. These eunuchs often served in the royal court and their lack of sexual desire assured that they would not pursue a sexual relationship with members of the king's harem. Such eunuchs, though, often became the most trusted servants of the king and rose to positions of great influence in the kingdom." End quote. The third type of eunuchs are those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. These individuals have renounced sexual activity voluntarily and they have abstained from marriage to devote their full attention to serving God's kingdom. Biblical examples of such people include Jesus, Apostle Paul, and some scholars even say that John the Baptist made himself a eunuch as well. Essentially, they serve God without marital distraction. Now shifting focus, Matthew records Jesus blessing the children. The disciples, who evidently still had not figured out or embraced the ways of the kingdom, rebuked the people wanting them to take the children away. But Jesus said to let the children come to him and not hinder them for such belong to the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 18, he had instructed the disciples to be as little ones who represented humility and total dependence on God. Children were an example of how people of all ages should present to Jesus. Afterward, the rich young man approached Jesus to ask about what good thing he needed to do to have eternal life. His thinking was flawed because it contradicted everything Christ had taught up to that point. He falsely assumed that he could be good enough via his works to have eternal life. Jesus responded by saying that if he wanted to enter life, he should keep the commandments. Now, after the young man asked which ones, Jesus informed him to obey commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and 5. So see Exodus 20, 12 to 16 and Deuteronomy 5, 16 through 20 for more. Leon Morris observes, Jesus focused on commandments that revolve around how we treat other people. He wanted to highlight the importance of ethical behavior, considering it as practical examples of what it means to live a godly life. Treating other well is a key aspect of living in a way that reflects God's values because 1 John 4.20 explains, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. End quote. In response to Jesus, the young man stated that he had kept all those commandments and asked what he still lacked. Jesus told him that if he wanted to be perfect, that is complete and lacking nothing, he should sell everything and become Jesus' disciple. 
The man was distressed upon hearing this from Jesus because he was very wealthy. And as a result, he walked away from Jesus. The man approached Jesus in a state of arrogance. He was proud of his good works, yet somehow he still felt that he was missing something. He thought there was something in particular he could do to have eternal life, but when confronted with the real issue, which was the state of his heart, which treasured his possessions more than anything, namely Jesus, he walked away discouraged and missed out on a great opportunity to be discipled by the greatest teacher of all time and the only one through whom he could actually have eternal life. Jesus then explained to his disciples that only with difficulty would a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Then as an illustration, he explained that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He was stressing the impossibility of the situation, but Jesus assured them nothing was impossible for God, not even saving a rich person. The narrative concludes with Jesus responding to Peter's statement about leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. He wanted to know what they would gain as a result of doing so. And Jesus informed the disciples that when the Son of Man sat upon his throne in glory, the twelve would also sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In addition, everyone who left everything for him would inherit eternal life. However, Jesus provided something like a disclaimer, which was this. The first would be last and the last first. This conclusion segues neatly to chapter 20 on the parable of the laborers in the vineyard.